Well, I'd like to uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Isaiah 55, beautiful passage. Our theme this morning as part of our behavioral covenant or compass for community, as we call it here in our church, is that we make positive investments in each other's lives. And I want to speak a little bit about why we developed uh, this behavioral covenant it was actually a suggestion given to us by our denomination. They said, congregations that have this agreement within themselves about how they do life together really do well. They're, they're good things. They're good ways of sort of having manners with each other. They're, they're ways that make community together work better. And uh, so they adopted some of this, uh, some of what we have from a book by Gil Rendell, his name, and it's called Behavioral Covenants in Congregations. And every week I talk about this a little bit, and, and this week I want to just, as a way of introduction to this continued series, talk about some of the unhealthy congregational norms that Rendell has observed in congregations far and wide, and that a behavioral covenant can't solve those for you immediately. But what they do is, instead of unhealthy norms, it starts creating a set of healthy norms. And before long, the healthy norms, gently but lovingly, push the unhealthy norms out the door, which is a great thing. But some of the things that Gil Rendell saw and, and the Alban Institute he, that, that helped him write this was, and I'm just going to read them to you. There's not, not that many, but here are some of the things in five areas uh, that they have seen that churches kind of have unhealthy patterns or norms in their life together. In the area of decision-making, one thing that they noticed in unhealthy churches was that all of our decisions must be unanimous. Therefore, we don't say what we really think, nor do we disagree with each other. Uh, and for um, Swedish sort of background people, this one is particularly true because we just don't like to say uncomfortable things to each other. Um, it turns out that actually healthy bodies do disagree with each other, and they do so openly uh, and without fear or without worry that it's going to destroy community because they realize that will actually strengthen community in the long run. Another norm, once a decision is made by our governing board, members of the board are free to tell people in the congregation that they disagreed with the decision and didn't vote for it. So they kind of just stab their own board in the back afterwards. On the, in the area of information sharing, in unhealthy churches, only the two or three primary leaders have all the information, and it seems that decisions are made even before you get to a meeting. Or... We're expected to vote on important issues in the same meeting in which we receive information about the issues. So this information is kind of held closely, and that's unhealthy. In the area of conflict, we believe conflict is bad, so we never tell others when we disagree with them. Kind of like the first one. And then, when there is conflict, we expect our clergy to back down and to apologize to whomever is hurt or angry. So... Um, you know, I, I really, I do apologize when I've made an error, and I do. And if I've made an error to you, please let me know so I can apologize. I will. Uh, just to let you know that I will not reflexively apologize just to make everybody happy. That's kind of the, the leadership that I need to bring. <laughs> um, that's the one area in this that I have some control because I can control my own activities. When it comes to complaints within the church, an unhealthy church when someone complains, we stop everything to try to figure out a way to make that person happy. 
Therefore, anybody in the congregation has the power to stop us with a complaint. Also, people are allowed to complain anonymously in our congregation so that we often don't know that people are upset. Or we know that people are upset, but we don't know who they are. In leadership in the congregation, only the longest tenured members are listened to no matter who is elected to the governing board. This, um, I've seen in other churches, actually. It's interesting. Like, there's the elected board of the church. They're not really the leaders of the church. Somebody else over here is, and they're not even elected to anything. And they all kind of have to go to that person and sort of ask for permission to do anything, which is a little messed up, because really that person should either be on the board or shut up. And finally... We expect the clergy to be the ones to produce all the new ideas for us to talk about and to try. So that was interesting. Um, And as I said, a a compass for community is not going to magically make these norms disappear. What a compass for community will do is create a new set of healthy norms that we live by. It'll give us a vocabulary to talk about the unhealthy norms. And it'll help the congregation, as I said, to lovingly and gently push unhealthy norms out the door where they belong. I want to talk a little bit about um, our special emphasis today, which is on um, making positive investments in other people's lives. That's one of the parts of our compass for community. And in, in all honesty, what I've been trying to do is find scripture passages that kind of I can shoehorn into each of these things, which is not how I like to do it as a preacher. I'd rather start with the word and let it tell me what to to preach. So I've been working backwards, but that's okay because that's a good challenge. I like it. And uh, Brian actually helped me find this one. It's Isaiah 55. And I want to just talk briefly about investing. Do you all have an investment advisor who sells you mutual funds? You know, that's the idea that we have of investing. We put money in a bank. We put money into some kind of 401k or 403b or one of those numbers. Um, Investing is not a terribly common concept in the scriptures, and there's some reasons for that. Um, Just a few of those. There, There are a few. One is the parable of the stewards. You know, one guy got 10 talents, one guy got five, one got one. The master came back, and the top two had doubled their money, so they, they had in, invested it in trade. The last one didn't even invest it in a bank to get interest. And so there is this mention of getting interest. So there is a sense of investment in the New Testament. Um, but that parable sort of commends risk-taking. It re- commends faithfulness and staying on the task to which you've been given. And it actually commends love for the master because the final one who didn't even invest it but buried it in the ground said he did so because he didn't really trust or love his master. Very interesting. Another is Ecclesiastes 11 uh, in the Old Testament where uh, it talks about casting your bread out on the water. Has anyone else ever been confused about that passage? Like, what does it mean to throw your bread out on the water? Because Bread does not taste good after you do that. You know, I just think of the ducks eating it then, right? But it's a kind of a beautiful word image uh, that I'll get into a little bit later. But that actually has a little bit to do with investing. So we'll get to that. And then finally, there's this parable of the rich fool. The, the one who um, has this really sad conversation with himself because he's, he's so into his money and possessions that he's cut off from community. And he talks to himself about his own money. Self, what shall I do with all this money? I'm going to build bigger barns and put more stuff in them. And then uh, God says to him, you're a fool. Tonight your life or your soul or yourself 
will be demanded from you. And it's possible in the reading of that Greek that it was actually those things that would demand his life or soul or self. He loses his own identity because he has given it over to his possessions. And Jesus then says, so it will be for all those who are rich to themselves but not rich to God, who do not invest in God and what God's priorities are. So that's just kind of a quick uh, overview of some of the places where investing you can kind of find in the scriptures. I want to say just a little bit about our reading from Isaiah today. This is actually more of a passage about how God invests in us. And it becomes for us a model in how we invest in other people. And uh, it's a beautiful passage. It admonishes us not to invest in things or buy things that don't pay off. It contrasts um, that kind of pursuit of things that really don't matter to the kind of freedom that God gives. And then in the end, it describes how God really manages his own mutual fund. And the imagery there is that the rain that God sends down is like his investment in the earth. And it goes and does things for his. His money works for him while he's up there in heaven. So with that introduction, let's go to our reading. Isaiah 55. One through 11. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name.
Amen. As I said, investing, putting your money someplace so that it grows, that's not really a very big topic in Scripture. In fact, uh, especially in the Old Testament, banks, as we know them, really didn't exist. There wasn't a place where there was a teller and a a window and you go put a few shekels and then they would take it and put it in some box. That didn't really exist. There were really only a few safe investments in the ancient world. And the number one investment was land. The great thing about land is that you always get to keep it, you always get to live on it, and if it's fertile, you can farm it, and so it'll give some kind of return on your investment. And people were very anxious not to lose land. It was a really big deal. And that's why there was so many laws about what happened to the land when somebody died. How was it split up among brothers? And the problem, of course, over the years was that that land could get smaller and smaller and smaller the more you split it up. And so a whole lot of law and a whole lot of energy went into what happens to land. Land was a huge investment. Cash, money, coins, ingots, that, uh, uh, just small pieces of metal, of precious metals, those became more common over the years, especially when there was an empire at hand, like the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, there was a currency. They minted coins. It had a sort of a set value. You could buy a certain thing. There were price controls. And then it was possible to loan money with interest to somebody because you could count cash. You could kind of say, I'm going to give you 10 drachmas. Next year, you're going to give me 20 back. Okay, that's just that's 100% interest, but that's probably what it was like back then. Um, but that was risky. If somebody didn't pay you back, and it's possible that they just couldn't pay you back, what did you do? What did you take their land as, as uh, security? Often you would take them as security. If somebody couldn't pay you back, they became basically, in a form, your slave. That was one of the definitions of what a slave was back then, was somebody who couldn't pay back their debts, and they would have to then work it off to you. Or you would take their children, um, and it, would be, it was somewhere in between slavery and indentured servitude. Um, And so you could actually earn your freedom back by working hard enough. But that was risky, and it involved um, uh, human, human activity, which was dangerous, basically. It's also interesting that back then, inflation and recession and depression of the economy were real problems. Uh, That happened quite a bit. We have relatively short cycles in our economy, relatively short. We have, I guess we're at the tail end of something called the Great Recession that started in about 2007 and 2008 because of the housing bubble and loss of confidence in banks and insurance companies. I think we all remember this. It seems like Silicon Valley has been sort of immune from that. Uh, that's about a six- or seven-year cycle, and we enjoy instant trading, instant communication worldwide, uh, and so the economy can right itself uh, to what us feels like a very slow cycle of about six or seven years. Back then, a recession or a depression could last 50 years. There's whole generations living in a, in a depressed time, and uh, you could see that people would then hold on to what they have even more strongly. They would really put their money under their pillow. They wouldn't put it anywhere that they would risk it. And they would hold on to their land and not sell it, not divide it. Um, Why do I talk about all that? Because back then, people were very skeptical about investing. They were very risk-averse. And so we see in that parable about the stewards who went and risked what the master had given them. They're commended for their risk-taking, which is very countercultural for that time. Um, 
So investing is noted in the Bible. People had a very negative view of it. But when it comes, in, comes to investing in other people, the Bible has strong and positive things to say about that. Um, so I want to mention again um, Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. And I'll just read the first couple verses of it because I think this is really kind of a fascinating thing. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11 says this, Cast your bread upon the waters and forget about how soggy it may become because not really the point, although I just can't get past that. Cast your bread upon the waters for after many days you will find it again. And then you can give portions to seven, yes, to eight. It will have multiplied, you see. For you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Eugene Peterson has it this way in the message. And it's the exact same verse, but it's highly uh, paraphrased. This is what Eugene Peterson says in the first two verses of Ecclesiastes 11. Be generous. Invest in acts of charity. Charity yields high returns. Don't hoard your goods. Spread them around. Be a blessing to others. This could be your last night, which is great. And actually, that idea of spreading your bread upon the water has two or possibly three interpretations. One of them actually is a real investing in that the the writer of Ecclesiastes was encouraging people to invest their money in international trade. And the way international trade was done back then was by sea. Seaport, ships, merchant ships. Put your money on that ship. Put your product on that ship. Wait. And you don't know what's happening while you're waiting. Something's happening while you're waiting. And that ship is going from port to port throughout the Mediterranean. It eventually comes back with seven times or eight times as much stuff on it. Now, barring a shipwreck or pirates or any other thing, it could never return at all. But there's this sense that You know, once you get that back, you can start sharing it with people. You can invest in that, and when you get the return, then you invest in people around you. It's kind of a beautiful thing that it says there in Ecclesiastes. Uh, And then it goes on to say that you should work hard, stay vigilant over what you plant, invest, and work with diligence. But the alternative interpretation of that to throwing your bread on the water is to give to people that you want to invest in and trust that something will come back to you somehow after some amount of time that you can't control. That if you invest in other people, some return will come from it somehow. And that could be charity. That's probably what's implied here, especially in the Old Testament. Charity towards those who don't have enough is always recommended by God. Giving to people who can't give back to you somehow could yield more back to you. And maybe not money, maybe not drachmas or shekels or ingots or dollars, but something else. What is that thing? Well, I think we'll find, we'll look at it. Um, So, let's look at Isaiah 55. And as I said, this is an example of how God invests. Um, And at the beginning, it's really beautiful. He says, come. Come to me who, if you're thirsty, if you're hungry, and it's this really haunting and beautiful phrase, come and buy with no money. It's like paradoxical scripture. How do you buy something with no money, right? How do you purchase something when you have nothing in your pocket? This is really how, it's kind of a description of the gospel. This is the description of God's gift to us. Do we pay for it? Not really. 
Does it cost anything? Not really, but somebody paid for it. So you come with nothing and you get something of value. Somebody paid for it. We know who that person is. And here's this beautiful thing that you get back. You get food and water and wine and all these celebratory types of things that you can live off. And not the kinds of things that you, you really can't sustain you, that you buy with normal money. This other food and drink that you buy with no money at all is the thing that sustains you in your life, in your spiritual life. Um, and then the, um, there's a connection made that how is this gift of free food and water and wine that costs you nothing, how is this going to come to you? Well, uh, the author says that this is connected with the covenant of King David, the, the promise that God made to David and that his line that he would bless the world, his people and the world through him. And so we see a very clear messianic prophecy coming out of this, that Jesus will then be the one who is, is going to keep this covenant and give us something for nothing, basically, on the cross. And now we get to this sense of how does God invest in us? And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's this sort of paradigm of, of rain, this, this water that comes down from heaven. And I'll just read it again. Uh, verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So here's the image that comes out of Isaiah 55, is that God invests in the world. And the way he invests in the world is by giving the world his word. His word goes into the world and it goes deep into the soil of the world so that it almost disappears. Just like rain when it comes down from heaven, it goes into the soil and it disappears into the soil. And it's down there and we can't see it, but it's doing something. It's making stuff grow. It's making seeds germinate and sprout and begin to pop up. And then in time, something does show. That invisible thing starts working a visible reality in this world. And it's the same way with God's word. It gets rained deep into our hearts. And it goes in there and we don't see the outcome right away, do we? We don't see what God's word does when it goes into somebody's heart right away. But it's in there. It's churning. It's activating things inside of us. And it's making things grow. And before long, something sprouts up out of us that has been germinating and fruiting. And that becomes the fruits of the Spirit, for example. Something that, if you want to keep going with this growing metaphor, the fruit of the Spirit comes out of us, springs out of us. And in the same way that God says the, the water goes into the earth and then it comes back to me, and it doesn't come back to me empty, it comes back fourfold, a thousandfold, a hundredfold, it comes back and it produces. And it's the same way with God investing his word in us. 
It comes out as the fruits of the Spirit, and we then begin to praise the God who created this universe. And we start giving God's word back to God, words of love, words of adoration. And then it starts creating a community that he loves and that we love. That's what his word does. And so we use our words then to bless each other. The words that come out of us that God gave us, we use to build each other up and not tear down. We use to interpret most charitably what is said and done by other people. Words that we use to work through conflict constructively. Those are the words that come out of us. And then finally, those are words that we use to make investments in each other's lives. We invest other people with God's word that he's given us. Now, I admit this is a bit abstract, and perhaps I've been talking about application, uh, and this is a series that's heavy on application. What can we do? What can we do differently? And the one about investing and making positive investments in other people's lives, I think, is probably the most abstract one that we have, but I think it's a valuable one. Think about how you invest in other people's lives. You invest in their lives by investing time, With them, you have to be with somebody to be in relationship with them. You have to spend time. It's just like your kids too, right? And your friends. Um, You have to invest energy. You have to bring the best of who you are to each of those relationships. You have to treat them as holy and sacred things. Um, You have to work at relationships. A relationship of 50 years of marriage is not an easy thing. A relationship of 10 years of marriage is not an easy thing. A friendship if it really matters, if anything really important is happening in that friendship, there's going to be some tough moments in that friendship. It takes time, energy, work, emotional strength. It takes all those things. The interesting thing about this, though, is that when you invest in people, it's much like when God invests in the world, is it goes deep down and it's mysterious and you don't see anything happening for a while but then it starts to grow and sprout and it will yield. That friendship, that investment will yield. Sometimes even surprising yields. It pays off. It's a good investment. It gets a triple A from the S&P, okay? It's a good investment. Um, The practical advice for us, and this is what makes congregations healthier, is that it's important for congregations within themselves to develop friendships and deeper relationships within the congregation. Um, I agree with that. In honesty, I don't know how to make that happen because I don't know who should be friends with who. You know, I just kind of like, should we alphabetically say, okay, you be friends, the A's all be friends with each other, and the B, no. Uh, Maybe we need somebody who's like a really good matchmaker You know what I mean? And say, well, you, this family could be good friends with this family. I don't know. I'm content to let that work out on its own. I think it's important for us to seek out those who seem like they are on the outside and envelop them and bring them in because the stronger community that we have together, the more investments that we make in each other, and this is the real goal, the the more investment in the lives that we have with each other the more we're going to taste now what heaven will look like then. I mean that. The church is a foretaste of heaven. 
And, in a, and heaven will be a place where relationships will be perfect, much like everything else in heaven. Our bodies will be perfect. Our praise of God will be perfect. Our minds will be perfect. And our relationships with each other will be perfect. The closer we can get to that in this body, the closer to a sense that we will have of what heaven is truly like. But also, after reaching in and strengthening itself, the body is then more free and more able and more resilient to reach out to the world and start investing in the community around it. And I think that's a great goal for us here in our church. We invest in each other so that this together as a body, we can invest in those people who do not yet know the gospel, but whom we want to introduce to our Lord and Savior. So I think the question that we have to ask for ourselves is, are we ready to do that hard work? It's hard work. Are we ready to risk? We might risk some rejection. Are we excited about the payoff? Do we think it's a good investment? I'm sure it's a good investment. Um, and are we... I think there are two alternatives for our body together. Are we kind of like people sitting next to each other on a bus that are going to the same place but not really talking to each other along the way? Have you ever had that experience? You sit next to somebody and you just kind of manage to take a really long journey with them and, and ignore them the entire way. You both get there. just don't have any community along the way. Or are we going to get there together and realize that even before we get there, we're already there because the bus has become a tiny foretaste of heaven. And by the time we arrive, it won't be like we've really arrived. It's like we, we've, we've already arrived before we got there because we've invested each other, in each other and built community together. I know this isn't easy. I know our human lives and our human problems get in the way of this kind of community. It's not going to happen overnight and it's not instantaneous. We can't achieve perfection here on this earth. But one of the norms that we can have together is we make positive investments in each other's lives in much the same way that God invests in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you risked everything on this world because you thought it was a good investment. Thank you that you risked everything on us because you thought the return would be good. Father, help us to invest in each other. In Jesus' name, amen.